God has been writing a story of redemption since before this world was. We might think that that story began in the garden, but that's not accurate. Because redemption always included the cross, not as a plan B. It is the plan. About the creator-redeemer, Griffith Thomas writes, we can look up into space and realize that Christ made it. Uh, Remember that we've been talking a lot about Jesus as creator. He goes on to say, we can survey history and know that Christ has been ruling and overruling it. The cross of Calvary was the pivotal point in all of human history and of all of the redemptive story. It's the center of human and cosmic history. The false teachers in Colossae that we've been talking about didn't believe that there was only one way to be made right with God. They rightly recognized the divide between God and man, but to use their word, the fullness was parceled out to many deities and, and lesser gods, which all combined made up the fullness and the gap between God and man. To them, they needed the God of the rivers, and the God of the mountains, as is spoken of in uh, the Old Testament. Today, people say such things, they talk about the hockey gods, or the golf gods, or the poker gods in our society. All that is rubbish, just like it was back then. About the the Gnostics, one of the commentators, Lightfoot, writes, in all cases, this pleroma, which is the fullness was distributed, diluted, transformed, and darkened by foreign admixture. In other words, there was this big mixture of all of the fullness. And they were only partial and blurred images, often deceptive caricatures of their original broken lights of the great central light. To them, Jesus was just one of many emanations that made up this system. Paul, on the other hand, says, if we have Christ, we're complete in him alone. These attributes and the fullness of deity, it wasn't spread around into all sorts of created beings, but they dwell fully in Jesus the creator. You see why Paul might have felt compelled to put Jesus forth as the creator and not a creature to support this argumentation that he was moving towards. Man is born separated from God. There's alienation and hostility in mind to to God. And we'll talk about that more next week when we get to verse 21. But that's why reconciliation with man was needed. They needed to have a change in relationship. Because our relationship to God and with God has been compromised like the hull of a ship that's been ruptured. A change in the sinner's relationship to God must take place. And it's through Jesus Christ that this change can happen. Because God reconciles man to himself on the basis of the finished work of his son, Jesus. Reconciliation was was made possible there through the blood of his cross. In recent weeks, we talked about the transfer from the kingdom of darkness to to God's eternal kingdom of light, and reconciliation builds on that. 
And this went right against the confusion of these false teachers, with, which thought that the universe was created by these emanations from deity who were closer or further away from deity based on how far they were removed from the top of the hierarchy. And the, in their minds, the universe was inherently evil. It also diffused the idea that man must make himself righteous by either uh, participating in, in various ordinances or abstaining from contact with any material thing so as to complete the work of redemption. And we'll see that where Paul goes with that later on when he talks about uh, some of the um, asceticism that they were uh, falling into to try to make themselves right with God. But as I consider this, the little I know about Mormon theology sounds eerily similar here, that, that somehow we, we have all these different planes between God and man. And Jesus gets us close, but, but some work that we do kind of gets us over the top, right? That's the idea. Well, any work that you think that, that got you over the top, goes right against what the New Testament teaches, and the rebuttal is the supremacy of Jesus Christ alone. Whether in creation or redemption, in Jesus, the Father was pleased to have all deity dwell in bodily form and to reconcile through his cross. The title of today's message is The Father's Pleasure. The Father's Pleasure. Just two verses this morning, verses 19 and 20 of Colossians chapter 1. We'll look at this idea of the Father's pleasure. Colossians 1, 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, that being Jesus, and through him, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Father, help us to have understanding today of your word. Guide us. That your spirit would abound. That it would quicken us. That it would waken us when we're sleepy. That it would um, show us when we're apathetic what it is that we ought to do. Meet us where we're rebellious and help us to submit to you and your word. And I pray that we would be good doers of your word and not just hearers. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Having described Jesus in relationship to the universe and the church, as we've seen in recent weeks, it's a short, short step that Paul now takes to speak of his preeminence in redemption. As Griffith Thomas writes, it's a logical, inevitable step from the work to the person, from the redemption to the redeemer, from the salvation to the savior. Our Lord's work is efficacious because of who he is and what he is. Jesus is supreme over creation, and he's also the center of redemption. It's a beautiful angle of the New Testament that the Son is the creator-redeemer. He's the creator, redeemer. Now, those who take the position as I do, that Paul is using an early Christian hymn, and that he's adding certain elements to it, um, they debate what's added. 
Well, the structure of verses 19 and 20 do, do seem to fit more the style of Paul. Uh, we saw a lot of like choppy statements in the previous verses, verses 15 through 18, which may mean that when we get to verse 19, it may be that the hymn ends at the end of verse 18. Or the other possibility, and here's where I would land on that, is that Paul now has, has more radically modified uh, beginning in verses 19 to fit his purposes. The last time we saw that the concept of, of Jesus being head over the church was likely added by Paul to support his argument. It also seems that the blood of his cross in verse 20 at least is added material. But this hymn as a whole lists seven unique characteristics of Christ, which perhaps would shape our Christology, what we know about Jesus, better than any other concentrated truth in Scripture. As the Bible Knowledge Commentary writes, no comparable listing of so many characteristics of Christ and his deity are found in any other place, any other Scripture passage. Well, let's think about that once again. What are they? Well, he is the image of God. And he's the firstborn over creation. He's the creator of the universe. And by the way, he's also head of the church. And firstborn from the dead. And then in our verses today, he's the fullness of God. And the reconciler of all things. These characteristics can be summed up into a grand climax when Paul writes that all the fullness of deity dwells in him, Christ. False teachers created a a dualism between the natural and spiritual realm. It was a false distinction between the secular and the sacred. There is a unity between creation and redemption, not the continual disunity of the physical and natural realm that these heretics suggested. So as we think on this idea of how redemption and creation work together, point number one from verse 19 is the Father's pleasure is the fullness of deity in Christ. The Father's pleasure is the fullness of deity in Christ. So look at verse 19 with me. For it was the Father's good pleasure. Whose pleasure is it? Now note that the Father's in the New American Standard Bible and also in the King James and probably other translations is in italics. That means that it's not in the original. And I can attest to, if you read this in Greek, there's no Greek word for Father in this verse. So the subject of the verb could be, based on the construction of the sentence, it could be God the Father as an understood subject. We use those kinds of things where the the subject is understood often when we use um, verbs. Uh, Shut the door. I don't have to tell you who the subject is. The subject's you. I'm asking you, shut the door. So the construction could be understood as God the Father, or the the subject could be the fullness. And so if you were to if you had an ESV study Bible today, if you had an ESV Bible, I'm sorry, 
uh, it takes the fullness of God as the subject, and here's what it says in Colossians 1.19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So which is it? Which is the subject here? Well, one of the commentators, Homer Kent, points back to the masculine participle of having made peace, right? Because you have to match up gender between participles and, and subjects. Well, if you have a masculine participle, it points to a masculine verb and a masculine subject of which fullness would not fit because it is in the neuter gender. So fullness would not fit in that sense. And you add to that that in the New Testament, when the verb to be pleased is use of deity, the reference is always to the Father. Think about some examples of that. That the Father was pleased with Jesus both at his baptism and at the transfiguration. But that said, the fullness and the Father really are interchangeable. That's why we have different translations. I'm convinced that Father understood is the best uh, way to look at this passage. So even though it's in italics, I think it's, it's right and proper that we would see this as it was the Father's good pleasure. Not that I couldn't be wrong. There's debate on both sides, but that's the best way I I see this. So with that said, this was the Father's pleasure, and what was it? It was that all the fullness was to dwell in him. The word translated pleasure is a compound word that, that could literally bro- be broken into two parts. Seemed good. Seemed good. It means to be well-pleased or approved. One of the Greek lexicon defines it this way, to consider something as good and therefore worthy of choice, consent, to determine or resolve. This word can carry the idea of choose or elect. It pleased him, so he did it this way. It pleased the Father, so he chose to do it this way. God didn't choose an elaborate system of emanations, He chose Christ to be the one in whom all the fullness dwells. This word fullness was a technical theological term which spoke of the summation of all of God's divine attributes and power. It has to do with the entire number or measure. Or another word that the the false teachers used was the plentitude. The plentitude. It was the sum total of the divine powers and attributes. And so what is this fullness that dwells in Christ? Well, if you look at chapter 2, verse 9, it makes it very, very clear. Colossians 2, 9, For him, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So here, in verse 19 of chapter 1, it doesn't say the fullness of deity, but that fills it in for us, so that we know that's what he's talking about, the fullness of deity. It is the fullness of deity that dwells in Christ, and it's the fullness of God himself. This term fullness is used most frequently in Ephesians and Colossians. And he used that word, it was meeting the false teachers on their ground, Because that was their word that he was using. 
And so a couple examples. And notice that the fullness or completion is used in relation to all three persons of the Godhead. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19. Ephesians 3, 19. And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Here, referring to God the Father. Look at Ephesians 4.13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of of Christ. So here you have uh, the second person. And then uh, Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So there's a, a filling of the Spirit there as well. In the eternal counsels of God, before creation, It was the Father's pleasure that all the fullness of deity, which is contained in all three, will dwell in bodily form in Jesus. Looking back at Colossians 1, verse 19, notice that there is a word before fullness. All the fullness. This makes it about as obviously emphatic as you can make it. It's, it's the whole fullness. We might say the full fullness. Uh, I mentioned several weeks ago a jelly donut that has air pockets in it, which isn't quite full. That's not the idea. It is what is crammed full. Room for nothing else. In later Gnosticism, which probably these false teachers were the start of or or originated, it was used of the fullness of God made up by the many parts or portions of God represented by these aeons or emanations. Rather than the fullness of deity being parsed out to many beings, each with a certain percentage of the whole, whole, Paul says, no, Jesus is 100%. Nothing else needs to be added. If you want to see the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in bodily form, look at Jesus. Nothing else is required. He's not a a lesser God. He is the fullness of deity. We don't need anything else but Jesus to see the full revelation of God's character and divine attributes. So this word dwell here, The fullness of deity, uh, the fullness dwells, all the fullness dwells. It's not the temporary dwelling of a sojourner, but the permanent dwelling place of one who is settled. It means to house or abide permanently and lastingly. It's not an apartment or a tent. It's a home. It's It's a fixed structure. Jesus didn't become the fullness of God at the incarnation, although that's when he took on a body. It was eternally so. The fullness of deity will now always be in Jesus Christ. One form of later Gnosticism that was called Serinthianism taught that deity dwelt in Jesus, but only on a temporary basis. 
Unless you think that that's some archaic view and nobody today would ever believe something like that, there are cults today, such as the so-called Christian science, who still hold to that. They would say Jesus was a man who lived in first century Palestine, and Christ is the name for a certain divine idea. I quote, Jesus is the human man, and Christ is the divine idea, hence the duality of Jesus the Christ. The invisible Christ, the ideal truth that comes to heal sickness and sin through Christian science, became perceptible in the visible Jesus, who was a mere man and demonstrated the divine idea. You see how they they parse that out, the idea of Christ against Jesus the human man. Well, the founder of this, Mary Baker Eddy, once said, if there had never existed such a person as the Galilean prophet, it would make no difference to me. Paul could not be clear, more clear about the falsity of such views and the deception of these false prophets. As Hebrews says, Jesus is the exact representation of God. He is the image of the invisible God. There's nothing lacking in that representation and nothing missing of the image. All the fullness dwells in Christ alone. This is one of the most clear and powerful statements of the deity of Christ in all of Scripture. But it should come as no surprise because because Paul has been leading us to that and he's been leading the Colossians to that all along. Jesus couldn't be all the things that Paul has said in Colossians 1 if he was not God. This transcendent position over the universe, over the church, and even within redemption demands deity. Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. As John 1.16 says, For of his fullness we have received and grace upon grace. If all the fullness dwells in Christ, think with me for a second. If all the fullness dwells in Christ, and we dwell in Christ, what can be said about us? Although this term fullness was used by false teachers, it does remind us of the Hebrew term used in the Old Testament when it refers to God filling the temple. Because when God filled the temple with his glory, there was no room for anything else. That was the idea of fullness. Jesus is the temple where all the fullness of God dwells, which the earthly temple pointed towards to begin with. So the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, And Jesus has housed down in us the temple of God. That's amazing. That's amazing. The false teachers were telling the Colossians that they didn't have the fullness. That God was somehow holding out on them. Holding something out on them. They they needed something additional. Sounds so much like Satan's lies in the garden when he said to to Eve and and, um, insinuated that God was holding out wisdom from her. So often, Satan doesn't come up with new lies. He just recycles the same old lies. But Paul says, you find fullness and satisfaction in Christ alone. 
and we're partakers of that fullness, and we need not to have anything added to it. And so any teacher of the word of God, any anyone who makes disciples, a disciple maker, should desire to lead others to the fullness in Christ. Because what else do we have to offer? All the fullness is in Christ. There's nothing that needs to be added. No rival deities. That's all a false religious system. Jesus is the source and dispenser of all cosmic authority, and no rival deity or emanation can act independently of him. But that's also true for us. We don't act independently of him. Since we owe him our every breath, and in him all things consist or hold together, how could we possibly think that we act independently of him. So when God determines the time to reconcile all things to himself, that reconciliation will happen. Nothing will stop it. Nothing will stop it. So point number one, the Father's pleasure was that all the fullness would dwell in Jesus in bodily form. Now secondly, from verse 20, we, we see... It's the Father's pleasure to reconcile all things through Christ. It's the Father's pleasure to reconcile all things through Christ. Verse 20. And through him to reconcile, through Christ to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. In Colossians 1.20, through him is in the first position in this sentence. That makes it emphatic. Through him. Through him. The word translated reconcile only appears in the New Testament three times. Here, in verse 22 of this chapter, and in Ephesians 2.16, that's the only three times that this word, which is a compound word, there's, there's other parts of this word that appear more than that, but this specific word, only three times in the New Testament. It means to compound a difference and to change mutually. But note, reconciliation doesn't change God. Reconciliation doesn't change God. The compound word is one that many people think that Paul made up for emphasis of a full reconciliation. It's a, it's a very definitive concept. It's a strong word that means reconcile fully. And we need to realize that it wasn't just the love of Jesus that motivated this reconciliation. What is the theme of this passage? Well, it was that it was the Father's pleasure to reconcile us to Himself by His Son Jesus. That's the Father's grace and mercy and love. But all this was made possible by the cross. The, the word translated having made peace in Greek is one word. It's the only time that this precise Greek word appears in the New Testament. 
having made peace. It means to be a peacemaker or, or to harmonize. This peacemaking and the reconciliation, they happen concurrently. The peace comes alongside with the reconciliation. It's a, it's a very important component of reconciliation. They can't be uh, separated, as it were. And both reconciled and having made peace are aorist tense. That means they happened at a point in time. It's not a continuing action of re- reconciliation. It was a decisive act in the past. It was an event in history, and that made this once for all, because it comes through the blood of his cross. It required bloodshed. The cross is an instrument of capital punishment. It was the most shameful way to put someone to death in in Roman times, in the New Testament times. But Jesus' death on the cross, it wasn't the death of a helpless martyr. It was part of the eternal plan of God, which required an atoning sacrifice for sin. It was a, a vicarious sacrifice that satisfied the requirements of the law and propitiated God's wrath against sin and against sinners. And while reconciliation was made possible because of the cross, each time a sinner repents and is forgiven, that reconciliation is then applied to them individually. It's realized by them individually. The mercy of God opened a way that man could be right with him and the enmity could be removed. The Prince of Peace made peace possible through his violent death. And this peace allows enemies to be God's friends. People who were not a people to be his people. Children of Satan to become children of God. And it pleased the Father to bring this amazing thing to pass through the bloody and violent death on a cross. And if you doubt that, Remind yourselves of the words of Isaiah 53, where it says it pleased the Lord, the Father, to bruise him. That's why the words in the hymn, the hymn writer writes, The punishment of God on God has brought me peace. It is because Jesus took that penalty that we can have peace with God. Not because God loves to inflict pain on his son. He was pleased to do it because of the resulting peace that this would bring. In in verse 20, it ends with this expression. Through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Earth or heaven is a way of stating everything. Things on earth, things in heaven, everything in between. It's the seen world around us and the unseen world in the heavenly places. It means all-inclusive, no exceptions. Does that mean universal salvation? Well, we'll get there. We'll talk about that in just a moment. As we do, let's just reflect upon some things about this reconciliation. So point number three today is just reconciliation reflections.
reconciliation reflections. So the first thing to reflect on is that we are reconciled to God. Not that God is reconciled to us. We are reconciled to God, not that God is reconciled to us. Uh, as R. Kent Hughes writes, in every reference to reconciliation between God and man in the New Testament, it is God who takes the initiative. Every time, it is God who takes the initiative. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Ephesians 2, 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it, by it, having put to death the enmity. Who did it here? God did. God did this reconciliation. Look at Romans chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Romans 5, verses 10 and 11. <clears throat> For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the rec reconciliation. Who did it? God did it. We just simply received it. We don't accomplish it. We don't decide for it. We receive it. 2 Corinthians 5. We'll look more closely at this next week, Lord willing. But for now, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and 19. Second Corinthians 5, verse 18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, or, or now he's going to explain, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Who did it? God did it. God does it all. He made the way, he draws, he saves, he accomplishes this reconciliation through the cross. Our part 
is to respond, but we can't even do that without God's quickening power. Like asking a dead man to get up. And so we ask sometimes, why aren't there more saved, when probably the right question is, why are any of us saved? And the answer is because of God, in his mercy, who did it all. Now, there is a sense in which the reconciliation is, is mutual, but we must not conclude that God in any way moved away from us or in any way was changed in this transaction. Folks, the Bible is not about man's search for God because the natural man is running away from God in the opposite direction. He runs as far as the east is from the west. The need for reconciliation is because man sinned and he caused that rift in the relationship with God. We left God and we need to be brought back to him. Reconciliation is not accomplished by us as we go through many different emissaries on our way to God. As if God would look at his scorecard and say, nope, you're missing this one. And so because of that, you're condemned to hell. No, God has reconciled all things through the death of his son, Jesus, in whom all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Reconciliation is only possible through Jesus. And had he not died on the cross, we would have no hope. Which brings us to reflection number two. Reconciliation includes peace with God. Reconciliation includes peace with God. Listen to these words from Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God, because of Christ, lays down his arms. If you are estranged from and resisting him, my counsel to you is to lay down your arms and be reconciled to God. Reconciliation means peace with God because our relationship has been restored. Our alienation has been exchanged for access to God, for intimacy with God. Our hostility has been exchanged for for harmony with God. We were his enemies. Now we are his friends. That's the idea of reconciliation includes peace with God. Thirdly, the third um, reflection about reconciliation is that reconciliation required the God-man. Reconciliation required the God-man. One of the commentators, Dick Lucas, wrote this. The apostolic teaching always takes with the utmost seriousness both the full deity and the complete and perfect humanity of Christ. For only so can he be the sufficient mediator between God and man. Because no man could pay the infinite payment that sin brought. That's why Jesus had to be deity. He had to be God. But no deity could suffer the human punishment that sin brought. That's why Jesus had to be human. No aggregate of all spiritual emanations could accomplish reconciliation. It was only possible through the God-man. The process of redemption that the false teachers had 
it included partial redemption, which aggr- was aggregated by, by different emanations. And these angelic emanations were neither human nor divine. But the God-man was both, and that qualified him as a redeemer. The language of the New Testament leaves no room for syncretism. That means combining many different ways to God. No, there is just one way. Jesus. Warren Wearsby writes, Jesus Christ is preeminent in salvation. No other person could redeem us, forgive us, transfer us out of Satan's kingdom into God's kingdom and do it wholly by grace. The only true way of reconciliation and redemption is through the incarnate son and his death on the cross. It required the God-man, Jesus, fully God, fully man. Fourthly, reconciliation guarantees our future. Reconciliation guarantees our future. The true redemption of God is absolute and final. It's not a process. It's a definitive act with no reversal. Listen to these words from Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's definitive. Once reconciled, always reconciled. Right? No going back. Because God did it, we can't undo it. If we could undo it, probably we would. But God did this work. And so our reconciliation in Christ is perfect, complete, and final. Reflection number five is that reconciliation includes the creation, things on earth. It wasn't just Adam and Eve that were cursed in the garden, as we saw in our scripture reading in Romans chapter 8. The earth was cursed. And by the way, we have empirical evidence all around us every day that this world is cursed. We live in a world that is cursed. Creation was involuntarily subjected to futility, but it too is going to be set free from the bondage that sin has caused. Number six, reconciliation will include all things. Reconciliation will include all things. When this verse says that all things will be reconciled, does this mean then that all will be saved? Does this teach what's called universal salvation? And if so, what of the ministry of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5, where we're supposed to make appeals to people saying be reconciled to God? If all will be saved, why call anyone to be reconciled? Well, some say that the all things here only refers to the good angels and those who are redeemed. They say it's things on earth and things in heaven, but notice that it doesn't include things under the earth, and they point back to other passages that use these three distinctions about different topics. I feel that that is a reaction against universal salvation and probably not 
the right way to look at this. As far back as the first centuries AD, people have used this verse in Colossians 1 to support universal salvation, that all will be saved. One of the commentators, Douglas Moo, writes this, universal salvation is a doctrine very congenial to our age. In other words, it's, it's very appealing to people. They want, they would love to hear this. Because what it means is I can just sin and sin and sin, and yet I'm still going to be saved. It's very congenial to our age, and it is not therefore surprising that this verse is regularly cited to argue for this belief. Did you know that there are universalist churches in Ohio? Universalist churches. In fact, there's one in Columbus near Clintonville, and I remember I used to park in their parking lot when I went to Chipotle for lunch. Ironically, if I remember right, it had a sign that said that this parking lot was reserved for the church only. Think about that one for a second. A universalist church who only wants certain people parking in... Anyway, things that strike you funny sometimes. How can it be said, though, that all things will be reconciled to God and yet not teach universal salvation? Well, one of the commentators makes the point that in Greek it is literally, it is the all things that are being reconciled. In other words, the existence of, in Greek, a definitive article, the definite article, the all things, makes a big difference here. And there's a clear example. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. I think he's right about this. Let me just walk you through this as I considered this and and thought through this myself this week. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Now I want you to notice as we read this verse that all things is mentioned two different times. Okay? Philippians 3.8, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Well, when Paul says that he counts all things as loss, and later he says, for whom I suffered the loss of all things, let me just paraphrase this for you. He counts everything as loss, and there's no definitive article here. That's what what we would call potential loss. All things for the cause of Christ. And then he says, I have suffered the loss of all things with the definite article. That's actual loss. What is the difference between potential loss and actual loss? Well, let me ask you this question. Could Paul have lost all things? Did he have all things? Did he own all things? No, so that's the general, right? But I have suffered the loss of the all things. Those are the things he actually could lose because he had them. 
the, defini- the definite article actually defines what is actually able to be lost. Paul can't possibly lose all things. He never had all things. But he counts as loss, and in Greek it is the all things that he actually did have, and he lost them for Christ. So what does that mean for our passage? Well, it means that everything that God has appointed for the purpose of reconciliation will be reconciled. This isn't salvation for those who die without repentance. This is not going to include fallen angels who went away from their first estate. He's defining the all things. It's making it a smaller subset. There's no redemption for the fallen angels. It's only true of all who trust in Jesus Christ. Those are the only creatures that will be redeemed. And then you think about this idea of the things in heaven. In what way can the things in heaven be reconciled? Turn to Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12. could be by heaven that he's just saying the things in the air in the air and the things in the earth it's possible also possible look at hebrews 9 verse 12 and not through the blood of goats and calves but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all having obtained eternal Redemption. Why do you suppose the Hebrew writer mentions that when he went, he had, uh, he entered through his own blood? Well, as one commentator suggests, it's because the blood of Jesus and and the reconciliation that it brought actually purifies heaven also. Even the good angels who are curious about redemption are reconciled by the blood of the cross in the sense that they wouldn't be able to accept the fact of lost sinners entering heaven if they had not had their sin removed. And there's examples in scripture where the angels are very interested in what we're doing. For example, 1 Corinthians 11 and in 1 Peter, where the angels are, and and the language is very very, uh, picturesque, that they are bent over and looking with very much curiosity and intensity at what is happening in this uh, war and redemption that's happening, that God is uh, telling the story of. One of the commentators, Nicholson, writes this about these good angels. Their sense of the sacredness of truth and justice would be violated by our appearance as welcome dwellers in the august presence of God that... that, um, had there not been reconciliation and redemption, that that people would be allowed into heaven. In other words, that sin would be further allowed into heaven. If we think about this in terms of heaven being the location of the rebellion of Satan, and that even now Satan seems to have some access, we can conclude that part of what reconciles things in heaven is when Satan is finally and ultimately cast out of heaven in revelations and at that time never to re-enter again 
about these powers being brought into reconciliation by being put down, Colossians 2.15 adds support to that. Because in Colossians 2.15, the powers that oppose God are not brought to salvation by Christ, but they are rather triumphed over and vanquished by him. And we'll see that when we get there. It's, it's a powerful picture of, of how uh, there is a, a processional and a, a celebration and a parade of that victory. And part of it is that all the powers, the, the powers that rose up against Jesus was put in subjection to him. And that was made possible at the cross. Of these powers, F.F. F. Bruce writes, certainly not depicted as gladly surrendering to divine grace, but as being compelled to submit to a power which they are unable to resist. So in one sense, God is going to force reconciliation in all humanity, in that all will bow, and everyone will submit to his rule. As Douglas Moo wrote, Through the word of Christ on the cross, God has brought his entire rebellious creation back under the rule of his sovereign power. There will no longer be an active war being waged when all rebels are vanquished to the lake of fire. And this is not yet fully realized. That's why there's not full peace on this earth today, but it has been secured in principle at the cross. The realization of it awaits the return of Christ to set up his kingdom of peace. Their rebellion will be put down and decisively defeated by the conquering king, Jesus. His universal reign of peace is coming and nobody will be able to stop it. So reconciliation doesn't necessarily mean, and it doesn't mean, that the relationship will be repaired and all will be made right. Some of it will be the ultimate uh, separation between the evil angels that left their estate and those who die without repentance in Christ. So that answers the question, why should we be ministers of reconciliation? Because if we're not giving words of reconciliation and God using us in that way, those are the people who never are reconciled that will end up in the lake of fire. And that should really move us when we think about our loved ones. People that we care about. Paul says that we're ministers of reconciliation as if God is making an appeal through us. How open and available are you to be someone who God is making an appeal to the lost through? It's a sobering question today. Reconciliation and salvation is the Father's work of joy. It pleased him to do it and to do it through his beloved son, Jesus. And so as we close today, a couple points of life application. Number one, don't try to find fulfillment in anything but Christ. Don't try to find fulfillment in anything but Christ. It is in Christ that all the full attributes of God are manifested. It is in Christ that all fulfillment in this life is to be found. We don't need to add anything to him for satisfaction. 
don't fall for counterfeit saviors or redeemers. There's only one that you need. Jesus Christ, God's son. Don't try to be your own savior. Trust that Jesus is God and you're not. There is a God, you're not him. Find fulfillment in Christ alone. Secondly, believers, be ministers of reconciliation. Making reconciliation possible by the blood of the cross was the Father's pleasure. And how we should yearn for opportunities to be ministers of reconciliation. To be those who who would make the appeal to the loss on God's behalf. Be reconciled to God. Somebody was that for you. To see God's rescue from Satan's kingdom and transfer the lost into the kingdom of Jesus. That should be one thing that we are living for. If that doesn't cause your heart to skip a beat, check your pulse. Make sure you're not spiritually dead. Because it may be that you are. And so, unbeliever, be reconciled to God. God has made a way of peace, a way for you to have peace with God. And you must lay down your arms and submit to his rule. Be reconciled to God through the cross of Christ. Father, thank you for your great love for us. It was the Father's pleasure to reconcile all that was to be reconciled through Jesus. And it was the love of Jesus that confirmed and was part of this reconciliation, died on the cross for us. And I pray that because of that, our lives would be cross-centered Lord, that we would be sacrificial. I can just hear the excuses in our hearts. I don't want to be a minister of reconciliation. It's too hard. I'm not a people person. I wouldn't know what to say. Give us your love that will overcome all of our excuses, all of our apathy, all of our lack of love. That it would be our pleasure also to see reconciliation between God and men, God and women, God and children, God and everyone who's in our lives. Give us an earnestness for this, a zeal for it, a love for souls. And I pray that you would bring us fruit that we would see people reconciled to you in our midst. And I pray for that one today, Lord, perhaps who has lived many years 
thinking that they were reconciled and yet were trusting in something of themselves. Help them to throw that off and trust Christ alone. We pray this in Jesus' name.